the Lord's beloved children. However, not all possess this knowledge. But some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brother and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we gather this morning needing to hear from you the grace that is offered to us in the gospel. And so uh, we pray that you'd give us ears to hear, that you would come and speak comfort and encouragement to us by your Holy Spirit. These are the very words of our God. And so open our hearts, open our ears, open our minds to the things that you have to say to us. We love your word, so we give ourselves to it now. In the name of Jesus, our Lord. you've been with us the uh, past few weeks in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, one of the main topics we've been talking about is idolatry. And one of the main issues in this ancient church, you know, in the church in Corinth was when God makes, gets a bunch of Christians together into a community like ours, how do we relate to people who are not Christians? We're outside of our community. You know, most people are not Christians. How do we, how do we uh, relate to them? As a big part of the book of 1 Corinthians, and in this passage I just read to you, one issue in, uh, in particular was that there were, were certain people in the congregation that Paul identifies as the weak, or those who are weak in conscience, who have a hard time with any kind of association with pagans, you know, idolatry, temples, you know, associating with food, you know, eating food that was offered, uh, offered to idols. And, um, and you can see that there in verse 10. This is what Paul says. For, anyone, for if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating, an idol's temple, uh, eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? So by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Now, this is interesting because, you know, for most of us, when we hear the word a weak conscience, you know, if you heard that someone had a weak conscience, what would that mean to you? It would probably mean that, you know, if someone is mean-spirited or they sin against other people they, and they don't feel bad about it, we say that they don't have a conscience or they have a weak conscience. That's actually the opposite of what Paul means here. And uh, the weak in conscience are those who seem to be offended or troubled by almost anything that associates with the pagan world. So it's actually not so much that their conscience is numb, it's that their conscience is overly sensitive. And so you have one group of people in the church that have these very overly sensitive consciences, and then you have another group of people who tend to be, they're probably more educated, 
They're probably wealthier, you know, they're more connected in the Corinthian society and they're out in the world. And they think, you know, idols don't even exist. There's only one God, there's not even a real idol. Who cares if you eat food that was offered to an idol? It's no big deal. So you have these two parties, the weak party and the people with knowledge in, in the church. And the people with knowledge are trampling over the people with the tender conscience. And they're giving no attention to them. And uh, Paul is critical of this more kind of progressive group that, you know, has this knowledge and they, they don't care for the people with the weak conscience. And so this is an interesting topic. What we're going to focus in on today is what does Paul mean by being the weak person? I think it actually connects with many of us, many things that we struggle with spiritually. And so I want to focus in this morning on uh, what is spiritual weakness and also, what is, how does God show his tenderness to the spiritually weak? And so I want to do that by answering uh, three questions for us this morning, and this is what they are. What is the source of spiritual weakness? What are the effects of spiritual weakness? When we struggle with spiritual weakness, how, how does that affect our lives, our emotional, our inner life? And then third, what is the grace that God offers to the spiritually weak? Okay, what is the source what are the effects of spiritual weakness? And what is the grace that God offers to the spiritually weak? And we, I have two answers for each of these questions. And so good insights in this passage from the Apostle Paul. So first question is this. What is the source of spiritual weakness? And this passage, there's probably a lot of answers to that. There's two things that, that Paul focuses in on. Is that one of the things that weakens us is just a lack of knowledge about the freedom that we have in the gospel. But also one of the things that weakens us spiritually is our former life. We bring into our Christian life our former life, and that affects us too. So we're going to look at both those things. So first of all, you see a lack of knowledge, and you see that there in verse 7. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Now, if you are here a couple of weeks ago, one of the things I mentioned was that food offered to idols is not a big part of Bellingham culture, but it was a very big part of ancient uh, culture, that much of the food that was eaten may have been, much of the, especially the meat that was eaten, was, may have been offered or blessed to, you know, a god or a false god or an idol. And, uh, you know, so for example, the temples, one commentator says, were basically like the restaurants of the ancient world. You know, they would have a great feast and many people would come into these dining halls and they'd pay, they'd bring animals and they would feast together. It was a place of communal feasting. Or if you went into the marketplace and you bought some meat in the marketplace, it was very likely it was, it was offered to an idol before it was brought to the marketplace. You have no idea. Or if you went over to your non-Christian's friends or maybe even a Christian friend's house and they were serving you meat, you don't know whether that was blessed you know, by a you know, priest in an a idol, you don't, uh, in, a, in a temple. And so uh, the eating of, uh, of sacrifice was a big part of life and society. But if you go to Acts chapter 15, in the first great council of the church, where all the church leaders came together, it's called the Jerusalem Council, one of the things that they said at that council was that Christians should not eat meat that had been offered to idols. And so there's this dilemma that you're living in the, in, in the world and there's, you know, food offered to idols everywhere. And, and yet there's this law that, you're, you know, as a Christian, you're not supposed to eat food that was offered to an idol. And so, um, I, so, you know, obviously for a Christian, the lines are very blurry. Living in the world, am I doing something that I should be or shouldn't be doing? And when you're young in your faith especially, you tend to think of the world in terms of, that are very black and white. 
there are right things to do and wrong things to do. And we kind of judge the world and judge one another in very black and white terms. And uh, so the spiritually weak in Corinth were very sensitive to the thought that any food that they had eaten had an association with temples, and it was a betrayal for them to eat it. And so this simply comes from a lack of knowledge and the freedom that they, they have in the gospel. And so a lack of knowledge just about the gospel and the freedom that we have, on the one hand, can make us very scrupulous. We make rules for everything. And so, you know, the whole association of Christians with idol worshipers made them very uncomfortable. But, you know, living in the world as a Christian, there's no formula for it. You know, you work with people who believe differently than you do, and how do I relate to them? What are the things that I engage in and things that I say, you know, I can't do that as a Christian? There's no formula. The Bible doesn't give us a manual of how to make all these decisions. You have to make judgment calls. And, you know, have I become too worldly? Um, It's not clear. But for the spiritually weak in conscience, almost everything is evaluated and judged, and there's no gray area. You can't eat that food. You can't go near that temple. You can't associate with those people. That would not be a Christian thing to do. So they're very scrupulous about their life. But then they also tend to be superstitious as well. Um, The weaker Christians seem to have thought that maybe there's something spiritual happening in this food that had been offered to an idol, you know. Maybe if I eat this food, the curse is going to come on me or something, and it's going to have a spiritual effect. And actually, Paul is going to say in the next chapter that... Idol worship was demonic. But, you know, as Christians, demonic powers have no power over us. There's, you know, demonic powers, we're free in Christ, we're secure in Christ. And so there's this lack of knowledge that says, on the one hand, God has given us freedom to be involved in the world. Jesus wants us involved in the world. He understands there's judgment calls that we need to make, and there's actually quite a lot of freedom for us as Christians. But also there's a knowledge to understand uh, that, that I don't have to live in fear of demonic powers. And so this hypersensitivity is understandable, though, because Paul talks about another source of spiritual weakness. It's not just a lack of understanding of the gospel and how it shapes our lives, but also for these spiritually weak, they had a con- there were continued effects from their former life before they became Christians, and they brought in- into their Christian life. You know, for many of us, you know, when you become a Christian, you, you imagine, you know, I'm going to become a Christian, I'm going to get baptized. My old life is being washed away. And I'm given this new identity in Christ, which is certainly true. God does that in powerful ways. But you'll notice uh, here in verse 7 where Paul says that, however, not all in the church possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. And so their former life is continuing to have an impact on them in their Christian life, causing, you know, because of their former association. And so, you know, this, this may be true for you. If you've come out of a destructive lifestyle, there are certain things that you might be hypersensitive to. You know, if you grew up in a family with alcoholics, and, or maybe you're an alcoholic, and you really see the destructive power of alcohol. And even though the Bible says that, you know, God gave wine to make glad the heart of man, wine's a blessing from God, you might see that destruction and say, I'm very sensitive about that. People, you know, Christians using alcohol, or, you know, I, I, I'm uncomfortable with that. Or, you know, maybe if you had a, um, you know, a destructive sexual past, you had sexual experiences in your life that have really deeply shaped your view of sexuality and maybe... You know, your first impression is sexuality is is dirty or I'm suspicious about it. Those kinds of things, those don't just all go away when you get baptized. 
Those are things that take years and time to work through and think through as you think through the gospel. And so it's not only that uh, we maybe have not learned the implications of the gospel, lack of knowledge, but experiences we've had in our life have a lasting effect on us even after we become Christians. And so what are some of those effects? That's the second question we're going to answer. So first, what is the source of spiritual weakness? It can be that the gospel hasn't really, the roots haven't gone down into our hearts so we understand our freedom and, our, and we don't have to live in fear. It could be also just the effects of our former life have, have had a, an effect on our, our spiritual life. Um, but what are the effects then, if that's the source? When our uh, conscience is weak, Paul says two things, two effects that we experience that I think many of us deal with maybe on a day-to-day basis. He says the effects of spiritual weakness are excessive guilt, an excessive sense of guilt, and excessive temptation. Two things. So first, there's an excessive sense of guilt. And the way uh, Paul talks about it here is that the weak brother or sister, if they um, even ate a piece of food that had been blessed in the name of an idol, he says that their conscience is defiled. What does that mean for your conscience to be defiled? Well, if you look in the Old Testament, when someone was defiled, it meant that they were not welcome in, into, the, you know, into the temple area, into God's presence among his people. And so being defiled is this statement that you're unclean and that you don't belong with God or with his people. And, you know, that's a profound statement. Many of us feel that way and, and in our conscience that I don't belong with God and with his, uh, with his people. There's a deep sense of shame and feeling unclean. And this could have happened very easily for, you know, someone with a very tender conscience. You know, maybe a parallel to what was uh, happening in the Corinthian church is, you know, if, if you're a Christian, you went to a, a Muslim friend's house and they were going to pray before the meal and then they prayed for ba- Allah to bless the meal and you bowed your head and prayed and then you thought, oh, man, I've just worshipped Allah, and I, you know, this is a betrayal. Even you're just being respectful in their home. You're in someone else's home. You're not worshipping idol, but you might, have a, you might think, wow, why am I such a coward? Why didn't I stand up for Jesus? And all of a sudden, you might start thinking, you know, am I even really a Christian? You know, I don't, I don't talk about my faith. I don't, it, my faith hasn't affected my life. And there's this sense of guilt that can cloud from very small things. Very small things that another person might be able to just brush off and say, hey, that's no big deal. What, you were at the Muslim's house? You are just being respectful? And you just say, oh my goodness, who am I? And you imagine the million things in the Christian life that can cause us a sense of excessive guilt. And these may be over very small things. And it can be very debilitating. It can keep you from prayer. If you have a deep sense of shame hanging over you, How can I even speak to God? Why would God even listen to me? It might keep you from coming to church. Do I even belong there? I don't even know if I've really become a Christian. I'm not even sure because my life doesn't really match it. I'm not even sure I belong there. And um, that's why Paul warns the church in Corinth that if you are not gentle and thoughtful with the weak among you, you will destroy them. Paul says, you see what he says there in verse 11, and so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. If there is not a gentleness and thoughtfulness and care among the Christian community about the presence of the weak and the effect the things that we say and do have on the people around us in in putting guilt and shame and uh, casting that on them, 
um, we can push them out of the church and they would say, I don't belong there, and they'd run away. Now, it's very interesting. You might think that someone who's very scrupulous, you know, they're very black and white thinking, uh, would behave, you know, very well because they have rules attached to everything. And oftentimes that can be true, that, that you know, they have a good behavior because, uh, um, because of their scruples and all their laws. But um, what a defiled conscience does is it not only gives us an excess sense of guilt, but along with that is an excess sense of temptation. Temptation goes with the defiled conscience. So Paul is uh, uh, saying to this church, you know, I recognize that some of you are comfortable eating with the pagans, and you don't worry about the food, but then he says in verse 9, look what he says, but take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? He's saying because of their weak conscience, which is weighed down on them, they feel a strong lure to their former life. If you have a heavy sense of guilt laying upon you, there is going to be a draw to your former life. It is going to pull you. And this is one of the reasons as a church, we talk about the gospel every week, about God's free grace to us as sinners, that we are accepted not because of our good works, but because of what Christ has done for us. We can be secure and assured of God's love for us. Because what will happen is if the sense of guilt hangs upon us, it's not going to result in us working harder and being better people. It is going to push us away from God's community and from God himself. And we are going to have a lure to our our former life. And uh, it is the grace of the gospel that guards us from temptation. And so, you know, let me give you an example of that. If imagine someone has had an addiction to pornography... And, uh, and they've really been struggling to say, you know what, I, I'm, I'm, I'm giving up pornography. I want to fight against it. I know there's a strong temptation. I know it's everywhere on, the, uh, on my computer. When do you think they are going to be strong against that temptation? Is it when they're secure in God's love for them? They know they belong to the Lord. They know what their identity is in Christ. They've heard that again and again, and they feel that deep in their heart. Or is it when they're weighed down with guilt, and they say, you know what, I'm a failure. I continually fail the Lord. I've, uh, I struggle with this over and over again. I'm not even sure if I'm a Christian. Why should I even show my face at church? Why, why, do I, why should I even bother? In what setting are you going to be vulnerable to pornography? It's in this setting when the excess guilt is weighed upon you. And that's why it's the gospel is the thing that actually protects us. Um, but when your conscience is defiled and your conscience tells you you don't belong, your guard is down and you are vulnerable. And so excessive guilt leads to excessive temptation. And of course, once you fall into temptation and you sin again, right, what happens? That just heaps more sense of guilt and it is a perpetual cycle and it's a cycle of more guilt and more temptation deeper and deeper into a darker path and that's the only thing that has the power to break that cycle is the gospel. That is the only thing, the grace, the free grace of God that is offered to us in Jesus. And so this leads to our third question, okay? Because, you know, some of you might be here, you know, you're hearing this sermon and you say, I realize I I am one of the spiritually weak. I tend to be very scrupulous, very black and white in my thinking. 
I'm even superstitious, you know. I think that I do things that maybe have jinxed me and I brought a curse upon myself for something that I did and that, God, you know, God's, uh, I brought some spiritual curse upon me. And I also see that my former life has really affected, still affects me. Maybe years into being a Christian, I, I still see that. And so I have a, a, a whole lot of guilt that I, I carry around with me and that leads to temptation. I, I see that this is me. And you might feel, that you might think that's discouraging. But something that's interesting about this passage is that Paul never tells those who have knowledge to try to change the weak. He never says you need to help them not be weak anymore. He says you got to keep them, you know, you need to be gentle and sensitive to what they're facing, but don't try to change them. I think the reason is actually probably those who have knowledge have things to learn from the weak. And throughout the Bible, God has a special affinity for the weak. And actually, at least 11 times in 1 Corinthians, this word for weakness shows up. This is a big part of, of, of the gospel. And so this leads to our last question. What is the grace that God gives to the spiritually weak? What is the gift that he gives to you in your weakness? And two profound things in this passage. The Lord gives us a community of weakness and a gospel of weakness. A community of weakness and a gospel of weakness. Both things that we need. Because, you know, the real burden of this passage is, is not to describe the spiritually weak, but actually to teach the Corinthian church how do you relate with the weak? You know, how do you love them? And it's such an encouragement that Paul gives such attention to the weak. He cares so much about them. They are an important part of the church that he wants to defend and make sure that they don't, their conscience aren't defiled and they don't start thinking they don't belong and they don't start running away because he knows that will happen. The weak are the ones, he says, the church should accommodate to. And they shouldn't always be thinking about, you know, I have my own freedom. I can do whatever I want. And I don't care what anyone thinks about it. We shouldn't think that way as Christians. And one of the most important ways to do that is to realize how essential to the body the weak are. The body of Christ, the church. So just in a few chapters, in, in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, this is what Paul's going to say. The parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. They're indispensable. Some of you here know what a defiled conscience is, and you say, I don't belong. They don't need me. God doesn't need me. I'm not even sure if I should go there. 1 Corinthians 12 says you are indispensable. You are an essential part of this community. And actually, one of the main arguments of 1 Corinthians is not only that you're indispensable, but that you are an example to the church, because the church as a whole has to become a community of weakness. Because, you know, the Apostle Paul, as, you know, the Corinthian church was very divided. Everyone's fighting with each other. People are suing each other. You know, the rich are getting rich, are getting drunk at the Lord's Supper, while uh, the poor are waiting on them. This whole church has all these factions going on, and Paul's trying to bind them together. And you know the way he does that? One of the things he does is he says, look at what I was like when I was with you. What was my life? How did I serve when I, was, when I was among you? And this is how he describes his ministry when he planted their church. In, chapter, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he says, I was with you in weakness, in fear, and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. It is in the weak that God shows his beautiful, miraculous power.
And so we must all learn weakness if the power of God is going to be present among us. We all have to learn weakness. And so how do we become a community of weakness? We need a gospel of weakness. And the lens through which we should see one another is the gospel. That's how we understand. When I look at you, who are you? He says, you should look at your brothers and sisters as those for whom Christ died. Don't destroy the one for whom Christ died. Christ has purchased each one of you with his own blood. And if you are of that much value to God, you should be of that much value to me. That's how I should view you. And I'm going to do whatever I can to make sure that you know you belong here. And it's in, you know, the opening chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, Paul makes clear that the gospel itself is about God becoming one of the weak. It's so powerful. 1 Corinthians 1.25, For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. So if you're here and you say, I know I'm the spiritually weak. I struggle to believe the gospel that Christ has set me free. That um, I belong to the Lord. I see my former life continuing to affect me and I'm riddled with guilt and temptation. You need to know that your weakness does not repel God away from you. It does not drive him away. It does not defile you. Your weakness draws God close to you. He has an affinity for the weak. He draws near to the weak. And so stay near Jesus because in him there is grace in your weakness. What you need is him. And we are a community of the weak. And in Jesus, the weak can know, I belong to God and I belong to this family. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the good news that you have chosen the weak. And for many reasons, we are all here because we've experienced that weakness. We pray that you'd give us wisdom as a church, that the cross would shape our life together, that we would look at one another as those for whom Christ has died. That we would say to one another that we belong and assure one another that we belong. And we ask this in the name of Jesus, our Lord.